doing two years ago. March 2020. Doesn't seem like 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, whatever you were doing two years ago, you were likely doing it from home. Because two years ago, a strange new virus entered the United States, and this made our lives look a lot different. Before March 2020, most of us probably never hesitated to go through a buffet line. What could go wrong with hundreds of people touching the same utensils and then eating? Before March 2020, I bet you never thought about contactless delivery. That you could order your groceries online, drive to the grocery store, park in a spot, open your trunk, and then someone brings them to you. Before 2020, many companies would never admit that their employees could work from home. That believe it or not, you don't have to drive 45 minutes to an office in order to talk on the phone and respond to emails. So maybe there were some good results from life under lockdown these past two years, but something else. I bet before March 2020, many Christians would never think about watching a church service online. How if we, we think about it, wouldn't it just be easier if we kept on doing this? Well, in their book, Rediscover Church, uh, which we give away to new listeners, uh, Rediscover Church by Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman, uh, they address the church's predicament after COVID-19. They ask the question, why should we bother with church again? I mean, when you stay home and watch online, you can watch any church that you want. You can get the highest quality teaching. When you stay home and watch online, you can listen to whatever kind of sermon you want, on whatever topic or scripture you want. When you stay home and listen online, you don't have to wake up early. You don't have to put on pants. You don't have to find a parking spot. You don't have to drive in the snow. You don't need to make small talk over bad coffee. You don't need to stifle a yawn through a long sermon. You don't need to eat a dry wafer and drink stale juice. So why bother with church again? Well, the question is harder to answer when you don't know what a church is. It's confusing because groups that bear the name church can act like a bunch of different things. Groups that bear the name church can act more like a spiritual service center where any and every individual need is met. Groups that bear the name church can act like a community service organization. Really the main thing they do is service projects. Groups that bear the name church can act more like a political action group, where it's not really the word that they preach, but uh, values of a certain political party. If those things are what a church is, then really why should we bother again? We can get those things in other places. So this week and the next two weeks after, I want us to see what a church is according to the Bible. And we're going to do that by looking at three sections of the book of Matthew. It's my prayer that as we do this, you'll be able to define clearly and simply what a church is according to Scripture. But this is more than just an intellectual exercise. As a result of being able to define what a church is, I pray that you will be convinced that the church is essential. I pray that you will be convinced that the church is more than essential, but that she is precious. And 
I pray that you will be compelled once again with the church's mission and the church's Savior. So if you haven't turned, with, uh, turned there yet, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Follow along as I read verses 13 and 20. Matthew 16, verses 13 and 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. As a result of our time, I want to show you the main point of this passage is that Jesus builds his church with those who are recognized to believe the truth about him. Jesus builds his church with those who are recognized to believe the truth about him. This will serve as the first building block of our definition as a church over the next three weeks. But within this main point, you can see what people believe, that is, the truth about Jesus. And you can see who believes it, those who are recognized. So from verses 13 to 17, we'll focus on the what of the church. And from verses 18 to 20, we'll focus on the who of the church. So what do those of the church believe? Well, they believe the truth about Jesus. Verses 13 to 17 give us the context, the content, the cause of what the church believes. First, the context. Look with me again in verses 13 and 14. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Just a quick side note, this title, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite title to use for himself, likely because it came without came with the least amount of baggage and misunderstanding with the people around him. It's a title that was used originally in Daniel chapter 7. So Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Before we get into the meat of what the church believes, we see the context in which the church believes it. In these two verses, 13 and 14, they highlight the context for us. So they tell us that Jesus and his disciples are in this city called Caesarea Philippi. This city is about 25 miles north of Galilee, which was Jesus' home base for ministry. Now previously, Caesarea Philippi was called Peneus to honor the Greek god of Pan. And so you go there today and you can still see ancient shrines to this Greek god of Pan. They're still visible. But the city's name was changed. That's because its governor was a guy named Philip, so he was Herod the Great's son. He renamed the city Caesarea Philippi in order to honor, you might have guessed it, Caesar, and to honor, well, himself, Caesarea Philippi. So here are Jesus and his disciples. They're standing in this city. You can already see some background. They're standing in a city filled with pagan gods and filled with political idols. So in this city, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples, 
What are people saying about me? And their response sounds like a game of family feud. It's like, we've surveyed 100 people, and 50 said that you are John the Baptist, raised from the dead. 25 people said you were Elijah. 15 said Jeremiah, and 10 people said mother. And you look at all these answers, and you see that they share some common ground. All of these answers are positive, favorable, yet all of these answers are lacking in some way. Basically, they're saying that Jesus is nice, but he's just another guy in the line. There's nothing necessarily unique about him. So when an opinion is favorable but lacking, it, I think it's fair to say that that opinion is patronizing. It's the opinion that says, yeah, Jesus is nice, but he's more of one of many than one and only. So here's the context in which the church believes back in Matthew 16. A context of a place that is filled with pagan idolatry, a place where people treat politics as God, and a place where people have a patronizing view of Jesus. Friends, you thought a lot has changed in 2000 years. Christian, I wondered, are you aware of the context in which we believe the truth about Jesus? And if you're not, if you're not aware of this, you can be aware that your love of Christ can be cooled off because you listen to the world's opinions more than you listen to the truth about Jesus from his word. You're aware of the context in which you believe. Now, Jesus is asking this question more than just because he wants to check his Twitter mentions or check his approval rating. Jesus wants to examine and teach his disciples. So we move past the context in which the church believes, and we move toward the content of which the church believes. So look again at verses 15 and 16. Jesus says to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If there was ever a eureka moment or a light bulb turning on moment in the Bible, I would argue this is it here. The guy that so regularly and even proudly put his foot in his mouth, as he'll do again in just a few verses, this guy gets it right. Here is the truth about Jesus, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ, you might know, is the Greek word for Messiah, which means anointed one. But here in uh, who, the, who Jesus is, the definite articles are really important. Because there are other people in the Bible who are called anointed one. There are other people in the Bible who are even called a son of God. Maybe Ohio State Buckeyes fans will resonate with, with this. Uh, it is not just Ohio State University. What is it? It is the Ohio State University. So here, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And both these titles would evoke royalty. They were used in promises to King David. So Jesus is the one who comes in David's line to establish God's kingdom on earth. And Jesus does this not just as merely a human ruler, he does this as a divine human ruler. We read earlier from Psalm 2 how God promised to set up his rule on earth through his own son. And Jesus fulfills that promise not as the son of the dead idols of Caesarea Philippi. He fulfills this promise as the son of the living God in heaven. 
So the people of Jesus' day thought that Jesus was just another prophet, but the truth about him is so much more. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God the Son in the flesh. So friends, the question that Jesus asked Peter is a question that we ask you this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? This question is important because your answer to it will determine how you follow Jesus. Your answer to the question, who do you say Jesus is, will determine how you follow Jesus. If you think Jesus is just a good teacher, you will follow him like a good teacher. If you think Jesus merely had some good ideas once in a while, then you will listen to what he says once in a while. However, if you believe that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah who came to earth to save us from our sins, to conquer sin and death, to reign and rule over all as Lord, if you think that about Jesus, well, then that changes everything about how you live. How you answer that question will determine how you follow Jesus. So what do people in the church believe? They believe the truth about Jesus. We've seen the context in which they believe that. We've seen the content of what they believe. Finally, Jesus explains the cause for how they believe. Look at verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So I said Peter's declaration was like a eureka or light bulb moment. It's like that. It's not exactly like that. Because Peter did not just stumble upon this like the people in California stumbled upon gold. Peter is not like Thomas Edison who over the course of three years tried some 3,000 different ways for the incandescent light bulb to work. Peter's confession of the truth about Jesus was not the result of years of trial and error. It was not the result of years of tinkering and studying to get it just right. Peter's confession of the truth about Jesus wasn't even something he inherited from his own family or his dad. Peter believed the truth about Jesus because God the Father opened his eyes to see the truth about Jesus. So I, I think a lot of you will likely have a similar story as my own, um, that you grew up in church, that you don't really remember a time when you didn't believe the truth about Jesus. And friend, that's, uh, that's, that's God's grace to us, but I think what can happen is that we can become so used to being Christians that we forget the ultimate cause of how we became Christians in the first place. We didn't become Christians because it was our own discovery, because it was our own achievements, or because it was our own inheritance. We became Christians because the Father, in His grace, drew us to His Son. So we've covered what those in the church believe. Those in the church believe the truth about Jesus. Next, Jesus explains the who. Now, if no one is called that as a band name, I'm called Gibbs. <laughs> Now, there's a lot to unpack in verses 18 to 20, but ultimately these verses show us who belongs to the church. The people in Jesus' church are the people who are recognized to believe the truth about him. Now we'll unpack who belongs to the church by noticing the church's foundation and the church's continuation. All right, so let's start with the foundation. Look at the first half of verse 18. He, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, 
I will build my church. Now, all the former Roman Catholics in the room just got really nervous. Is this the one verse that we Protestants don't talk about? Well, no, we can address the Roman Catholic interpretation in just a minute, but let's dive in first to see what Jesus is saying, like uh, positively instead of refuting negatively. Uh, when Jesus tells Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. What or who is Jesus referring to when he says this rock? What or who is he talking about? There are different opinions. Some argue that this rock refers to Peter himself. Others argue this rock refers to Peter's confession. Others argue this rock refers to Jesus and his teaching. I argue that it is the most natural reading of this verse to say that this rock refers to Peter. Jesus speaks directly to Peter here. Further, the statement, you are Peter, is connected purposefully to the statement on this rock with the preposition and. You are Peter and on this rock. Now, before you nail your 95 theses on me, Martin Luther style, just because this rock refers to Peter doesn't mean we jump to say that Jesus is saying, Peter, you're the first pope. I would say that's not just a jump. I would say that's a leap. We have to keep in mind the context of this passage that will govern how we view Peter as the rock. The context of this passage. So what happened right before this? What happened right before verse 18? Right before this verse, Peter confesses the truth about who Jesus is. So the context showed that, that context shows us what it means for Peter to be the foundation of the church. It shows us that Peter and the apostles are the first to believe the truth about Jesus. Peter and the apostles are also the first to announce the truth about Jesus. See that in Acts chapter 2. The rest of the Bible proves that this is what Peter being the foundation of the church means. He's the first to believe. He's the first to announce. The rest of the Bible does not show Peter with a special amount of authority. The rest of the Bible shows Peter as the first to announce the truth about Jesus in Acts chapter 2. Then in Acts chapter 8, other apostles send Peter to Samaria. In Acts chapter 11, Peter has to give an account to other apostles. In Acts chapter 15, at the Jerusalem Council, the apostles are trying to make a decision. It's not Peter who has the last word. It's actually James who has the last word. And after Acts 15, Peter actually pretty much disappears from the narrative. He doesn't really pop up again until Galatians 2. And when he pops up there, it's Paul, another apostle, getting into Peter's face. So Ephesians 2 verse 20, we read earlier, says that those in the church are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So again, for Peter and the apostles to be the foundation of the church means that they are the first to believe the truth about Jesus and the first to announce the truth about Jesus. And we said the case for this is the exchange between Jesus and Peter that happens before verse 18. The case for this also is what Peter's role is in the rest of the Bible as we continue reading it. So, Jesus starts with the foundation or the beginning of his church. Then he moves to the continuation of his church in the second half of verse 18. So pick it up there. 
We'll just read all of verse 18 and 19, okay? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus not only starts his church, he continues his church. He continues his church in three ways. He builds it, he sustains it, and he authorizes it. Builds it, sustains it, authorizes it. Before we get into those three ways, just a quick side note, I want to quickly define what the word uh, church means. So this word that Jesus uses for church is the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia is simply a group of people that has assembled together. Now the assembly of people Jesus refers to here is ultimately the universal church. It's all Christians across time and place that he will assemble upon his return. So Jesus not only starts his church, he continues it. Right after Jesus talks about Peter being the foundation of the church, he says that he will continue his church by building it. He will build it. Jesus will build upon the work that's first seen in Peter. There will be more people like Peter, more people who believe the truth about Jesus. Jesus very soon keeps his promise to build his church. Just a few weeks after he ascended to heaven, Peter announced the truth about Jesus in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. He announced in Jerusalem that Jesus, according to the wisdom and foreknowledge of God, died in the place of sinners, but that it was impossible for death to hold him, that he rose again. As Peter announced this truth, 3,000 people turned from their sin and believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Here is Jesus keeping his promise. He's building his church. I think it's a worthy reminder today as an encouragement, friends. Jesus is still building his church. Jesus is still keeping his promise. He's, he's doing that in the United States. He's doing that across the world. I think it's a good check on us because our eyes and our hearts are drawn to just listening to bad news. And, and there's plenty of it. We shouldn't ignore it. Neither should we ignore the ways that Jesus continues to build his church. So I would encourage you, listen to good news as well. Listen to news from local ministries like Youth for Christ or Building Hope in the City. Be encouraged by the testimonies you hear at the Church of West Creek at members' meetings. Listen to the news of Jesus building his church. One of my favorite podcasts is one called Compelled. Jesus building his church. See how Jesus builds his church around the world. In our resource center, we got uh, two sets of DVDs called Dispatches from the Front. It highlights missionary work around the world. Look at Jesus keeping his promise, building his church. Check one of those out. Now I know every Sunday won't get the same response to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. But we will still continue to declare the truth about Jesus from, his word of the, from the word that is about Jesus. And as we do that, we trust that Jesus, not us, keep his promise to build his church. Jesus not only starts his church, he continues it. He does it by building it. He does it by sustaining it. Jesus sustains the people who believe the truth about him. He says the gates of hell will not prevail over my church. And here Jesus displays 
this very tender, tender, shepherd-like heart for his people. He knows that his people will receive opposition because he knows that he will very soon receive that same opposition. So in this promise, the gates of hell will not prevail over my church. Jesus not only lovingly warns, but he assures us of victory over any opposition. And even that opposition will ultimately be resurrection from the dead, like his own. The old English pastor, J.C. Ryle, eloquently reflects on this. He says, the Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros, they have all labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands, and they pass away and go to their place. The true church outlives them all, and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world, and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush that is often burning, and yet is not consumed. I think for us, there are many worthwhile institutions that we can give ourselves to, whether that's charity work, or whether that's government work, or whether that's some kind of commerce. But here's an encouragement, some guidance, that our highest loyalty, our deepest hope, should be to the institution that will last. Not any kind of government, but the Church of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Jesus' church began with Peter and the apostles, the first ones who believed the truth about him. Jesus continues his church by building it with more people who believe the truth about him. He continues his church by sustaining the people who believe the truth about him. And he continues his church, thirdly, by authorizing his church. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It seems like such a strange way to end his talk to Peter, doesn't it? Does he end this way just to set up for jokes about Peter taking care of the gates of heaven? No. I think it's a little like this. So, so who here has siblings? Show of hands. Do you have brothers and sisters? Most of them. Okay, great. Anybody here is the oldest sibling in your family? All right, many of you. Okay. So when you were a kid and your parents left you and your kids home alone, maybe they put you in charge. Maybe they trusted you enough to do that. Okay, so uh, maybe mom and dad, when they left the house, they'll say, we'll be gone in a few hours. Until we get back, your brother is in charge. You need to listen to him. So it means although your parents were not physically present, they authorized the oldest sibling to be in charge. So in some way, Jesus is authorizing Peter and the rest of the apostles with him. But what is Jesus authorizing them to do? Well, he tells them that they can bind and loose on earth, and it will be reflected in heaven. Here's an example where verb tense is really important. Now, bear with me for a minute if you don't like English class. Now, where it says, shall be bound in heaven, you see that there in verse 19? The verb tense is future perfect passive. So to be a little bit more accurate, to carry out the sense, it could say something like this. Instead of shall be bound in heaven, it could say will have already been bound in heaven. So Peter and the apostles' authority, they have authority to announce decisions already made in heaven. So what are those decisions, though? 
What decisions can they announce that have already been made in heaven? Well, we're talking about the gates of heaven, so that must mean they can announce who's going to heaven and who's not going to heaven. They don't make people go to heaven, they announce it. So do they announce it randomly? Is it just as simple as, hey, Kevin, I don't really like you. You're definitely not getting in. No. Again, remember the context. The context, when did Jesus announce that Peter was blessed? When did he announce that? He announced it after Peter confessed the truth about him. Jesus recognized Peter's confession of faith in him and then called him blessed. So it's faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus alone to save us from our sin, trusting in Jesus alone to stand in our place before God the Father. Faith in Jesus is the only way to heaven. So with that context in mind, when Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to his apostles, it's like he's telling them, you guys can do the same thing that I just did for Peter. You can recognize someone else's faith in me. You can announce to them confidently, because you trust and follow Jesus as the Christ, he will bring you to himself forever you can also warn them. If you do not turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you still face eternal penalty for your sin in hell. So Peter and the apostles, and later the entire church, they recognize those who believe the truth about Jesus. Those who believe the truth about Jesus are those who are part of the church, at least the universal church. Those who believe the truth about Jesus are those who will be in heaven. So Jesus authorized the apostles basically to stand in front of somebody and consider what they claim to believe about Jesus. They can look at that person's life and decide whether their life matches up with what they claim to believe. They can recognize who are true believers of Jesus, and they can affirm what they believe is the truth about Jesus. They can recognize the what and the who of the gospel. So maybe if, if you're lost, maybe an analogy will help. So Peter and the apostles are like representatives of heaven's kingdom on earth. It's like they work for heaven's embassy on earth. Now, uh, again, this is from author Jonathan Lehman. He uses this analogy. Uh, if you don't know what an embassy is, an embassy is an institution that represents one nation inside of another nation. It declares the home nation's interests to the host nation. It protects the citizens of the home nation who live in the host nation. So, just scenario. Let's say you lived in another country. Someone, give me a country. Shout one out. Spain. All right. Let's say you lived in Spain for a few months. It's a cool place. Uh, so, you live in Spain for a few months, but while you were there, your passport expires. This is not good news. Uh, so, you no longer have documentation that you're a U.S. citizen. So if you want to go back to the States without a passport, you will have a very hard time. Uh, so what do you have to do? You have to go to the American Embassy in Spain. The American Embassy uh, will not make you an American citizen, but they will recognize that you are an American citizen. You don't have the power on your own simply to declare to Spain, listen, I'm a U.S. citizen. You need the embassy to recognize you. The embassy gives your citizenship weight and credibility. So next week we're going to see how this embassy-like authority 
to recognize kingdom citizens, it belongs not just to the apostles, it belongs to the local church. So we can, see, we can start to see how all these elements are coming together from Matthew 16. Jesus builds his church with those who are recognized to believe the truth about him. Recognized, just like Jesus recognized Peter. And we can start to see some of the building blocks of a church, of a local church itself. So if we follow Matthew 16, then we must start with preaching the what of the gospel. We must start with preaching and believing the truth about Jesus. Then we must recognize the who of the gospel. Who are believers in the truth about Jesus? So as we wrap up this passage and we transition from verse 19 to verse 20, you thought verse 19 was unexpected? Wait until you read verse 20. After this giant momentous occasion, Jesus tells his disciples, guys, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. At least not yet. What Jesus goes on to say in verse 21 explains his instruction in verse 20. People won't truly understand who Jesus is until they see the main thing that Jesus has done. Is to die and rise again for sinners. And as would have it, this is a fitting end to Jesus' teachings on his church. He clarifies what his church believes, he clarifies who belongs to it, he clarifies how his church will continue. But this closing note here clarifies the price at which Christ will purchase his church. This closing note here reminds us why we should care so much about this. Like we sang earlier. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Our Lord and Savior, we seek to build our lives and our eternity and our hope on the solid rock of you and you alone, not upon ourselves. Lord, we, we are thankful that you opened our eyes to see the truth about Jesus. It's our prayer now that if there is someone here who's not quite clear on the truth about Jesus, who is not decidedly following him in, in, in trust and obedience, that you would move upon their hearts to, to draw them close today, to ask questions, to see who Jesus really is, not just what people say about him. Lord, it's our, it's our prayer today that you would give us grace to teach us about what the church is, that you would remind us and encourage us, that you will continue to build your church and you will sustain us. And please keep us, your church, pure. We ask this for the honor of your